0: As we begin, let's start with a word of prayer, and before we pray, just going to draw your attention to the Lord's Prayer, just for um, a thought as we enter into the presence of the Lord for prayer. When he says, uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think it's one of those lines that often we, we just fly by and don't really consider, but it, it is a clear reference to the angelic obedience, right, that the angels are obeying the will of of the one who has made them in such a way that they freely and joyfully do exactly what is asked of them, they dispose of the Father's will with free joy and goodness. And and they find pleasure in that and satisfaction in that. And then the prayer is that that would actually be reflected then on this earth, that God's people particularly, I think, but also all people, would do what God wants, and that they would do so because they want to do so, to please Him for His sake. I just think it's one of those things in which we often don't think about how we pray, but one of the ways in which I think we should be praying is that we not only do what God wants, but that we want what God wants, and that we have a mind and a heart to find joy and satisfaction in serving our King as King, and that, that brings us deep um, meaning in life, satisfaction, And not only that, I would say a sense of purpose, right? God has put me here for his pleasure, and that when I do his pleasure, I am actually doing exactly what he has made me for. And that should be a good and sweet thing for us. So let's pray that way that God works his will into our hearts tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being our father who relates to us, cares for us, protects us, guides us, and ministers to us through the word of Christ, We thank you so much for the ministry of our Savior, who not only dies for us, but now pleads for us and sits at your right hand even now as we speak to you. Father, we thank you that through the ministry of the Spirit, we have the hope of reflecting the angelic joy of obedience. And we ask that even tonight as we try to understand your word and we work together to bring ourselves into line with what your text says that you'd be pleased to shape our hearts to be a reflection of yours, that we might want what you want, that we might see the ways in which we can be more like you and therefore more pleasing to you. Father, I ask that you'd make this place, uh, this assembly, more holy and more like Christ, that we would be living closer and closer to that glorious status that you have given to us as saints. Thank you so much for giving us Jesus Christ, through whom you minister these blessings. Thank you for your word and your church. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a, a short thought tonight from 2 Corinthians again, just kind of meditating on the ways in which, as we look at the ministry of Christ, it should be shaping us. So as we look at Christ formed in us, we want to be thinking through ways in which Christ, his character, his, his life and work should be shaping us. Frankly, that's a fairly broad topic, as Caleb pointed out humorously last week. But I think we look in 2 Corinthians 5, we see actually some really clear points that the Apostle Paul is making about how we should be thinking and how we should be living. So if you're turning with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read from verse 11. I'll read down through the end just so we get a broader context. I want to focus particularly on verses 14 and 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, Incredibly encouraging passage, isn't it, to consider? When you look at the text in verses uh, 14 and 15 especially, I think the Apostle Paul is defending the motives with which he is approaching ministry and what has revolutionized his heart. And when you look at that, he begins with this consideration, he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ. So he's going to say, "For the love of Christ is, is, is accomplishing something. That word love of Christ is a little bit ambiguous, um, I suppose uh, both the Greek and the English carry it well. You could have a love of Christ being your love for Christ. So you could read it something like this. My love for Christ is a controlling love for him. Or you could read it this way. "Christ love one in the way the, the Grecian love. So we should read it that way. As you go on, what do we see demonstrated as he kind of unpacks what it means to look at Christ's love? What does he begin to show us? Look down in the text again. Verse 15, first line he died for all. So, so the immediate considerations aren't our affections for Christ, but in fact, Christ's demonstration of his love for us by doing what? By dying for us. So we go through and try and, trying to, to interpret a, an ambiguous phrase. The context really helps control us, and that is we're looking at Christ's love, particularly we see it demonstrated in his work of dying for us, And that love actually does something. So as the believer looks at Christ's love, he says that love is a controlling love. We have this phrase in uh, English, maybe. uh, We would say something is between a rock and a hard place. And the idea is that he's hemmed in between two kind of Um, immovable things and it's forcing him in a direction. It's that the love of Christ is is constraining and moving him forward in a direction. It keeps him from doing something but also presses him towards doing something. That's what it means. The love of Christ is controlling him. I'm just going to stop there. He is meditating on the love of Christ and it leads him to a must. I must do this and I must not do this. Because he considers and, and works through what the implications of Christ's love demonstrated in the cross should lead him to. And I just would appeal to all of you in our busy and frenetic lives, if you're anything like me, it is easy to not meditate. It is easy to be someone who um, diligently does what should be done in terms of the activity stuff. But then you almost feel like you're wasting time if you're just thinking. I don't know if anyone else gets antsy if nothing's being done, but sometimes I can feel that way. I have things that I need to get done, and it feels like if I were just to sit at my desk and put nothing in my hand and just sit there and just make myself think, that's an incredibly hard discipline. Like my my fingers will start moving, and all of a sudden I'll think of like 18 things I need to do, three emails I haven't replied to yet, a couple tasks I need to write down before I forget them because I will forget like crazy, and all of a sudden I am not meditating. When I get in my car, I almost always turn something on. Or I'm thinking about like what I need to do and then I'll, I'll write a memo to my, on my phone at the stoplight. Like I am, I am always moving in this world. I think I'm pretty normal. <laughs> maybe I'm not normal. I just got a whole bunch of like, no, no, that's not normal. <laughs> well, maybe I should take that back. My concern, though, is that as a society, we are filling our ears and our minds with inputs like never before. Like We listen to podcasts, we watch television, and there are people who have the television running at home just because they like noise. We, we do not like to be alone with our thoughts. And I don't think I could urge you strongly enough that one of the implications of this text is that considering Christ's love is a worthwhile task to absorb the Christian's conscience for long periods of time. And as the apostle does this, it leads to practical implications. So for those of you guys that are doers out there and you don't like just thinking, the thinking led to doing with joy. Or maybe I could say with clarity of purpose. Probably a better way to describe what you see in this text. So as you can continue on, look at me in verse uh, 14 again. The love of Christ controls us because we have thus concluded, in other words, Um, Having judged life this way, that that word concluded as an idea of assessment and judgment being made and coming out with this conclusion, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. I would take all those alls to be somewhat narrow to the redemptive all. Uh, Some might want to broaden it out, but it seems as though all those for whom he died end up being those who live. And so it seemed to be a narrowed living or a narrowed all. You know, sometimes like we have a phrase where like Christ dies or excuse me, like like he, um, in John 10, he gives his life for all and it's very clearly all his sheep. It's not just like all humanity in general. I think this is a text too where you see that all being used in a sense of he has died for all the redeemed so that all those who have died with him as the redeemed will be those who live no longer in a certain way but in a different way. So he says, all have died, and he died for all. Here's a purpose statement that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And again, if we're trying to try to understand that word all, he died and was raised, that word raised is never used of, of kind of a more generic statement of him dying for the world. In other words, he, he might die for the world, but he's never been raised for the world. So the, the, the res, resurrection of Christ is only something that the believer participates in, where maybe in some sense you would say that the death of Christ purchased common grace for all men, uh, that the stay of execution that we deserve because of Adamic guilt is in some way a loaned grace from the cross, common grace, is what, what we defi- define it as, whereas redemptive grace or electing grace is something that's only for God's elect. Um, And likewise, I think here, because of the resurrection being included in this, I think we ought to be narrowing that word all to all the redeemed, or we'd say all the elect. Having said that, notice he gets this conclusion then. He goes, "Here's, here's what we've ascertained as we meditate on the love of Christ. He's done this. He's died for all, and it leads to all that he died for doing what? He says, I've died for all, therefore all have. So, so we have here like one dying, and how many actually end up receiving the benefit or the participatory death? All. So we, so we have this, this solidarity idea that is like, as Adam sinned, how many sinned with Adam? All. And so now we have Christ dying, one dies, and actually he says, then how many died? All of us died with Christ. That's an idea of solidarity. That is, we join with Christ in his death. Right? So we are united with Christ. We have union with Christ as a doctrine. We are participating in his death. Is what um, Romans 6 says. We have been buried with him in baptism. That like as he was buried, we will also be raised. So we have that participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's pictured in the waters of baptism. So he says, therefore, all have died. But he died for this purpose. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. And so just as Christ died and raised, he takes that and shows us how that walks into our life. So we died is parallel to this thought. Look in the second line of verse 15. We would no longer live for whom? Ourselves. So he's calling for us to understand that Christ's love has led him to die So we could say it this way. It's not quite how he says it, but I think it's his logic. He died to himself by dying physically, like literally. So therefore, we should die to ourselves so that our co-crucifixion with Christ isn't merely in union with Christ. It's also to have practical ramifications. That is, we are to be walking dead men. Well, to what do we die? I think you see the answer in verse 16. Therefore, we now regard no one according to the flesh. So if I were to read that a little more loosely, kind of the Mark Brock paraphrase here, for, for now on, therefore, we do not view the world according to its standards. That That is, we have a, we have a new lens through which we view the world. We are not going to look at it the way the world looks at the world. So you'd see something like this in, in 1 John, this call to not tie ourselves to those things that are passing away. That is, we are, we are beings who have now been granted eternal life, we've been incorporated with Christ, and we have no business anchoring our life's passions and pursuits to things that are, are merely passing away. That's what the world does. So why would you, in Jesus' words, gain the world and lose your soul? As those who've been purchased by Christ and now have an eternal life with Christ, we look at the world and the things that are passing away, and we refuse to bind ourselves to them or see them as somehow worthy of our heart's goals, and we look at them as merely transitory stewardships in a leverage for eternal values. That's what it means to view things according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ this way. We regard him no longer, and he continues then to say how this has supercharged his heart for ministry. But if we just kind of stop and take a break and consider then the implications, I think there are times in which, if we are not cautious, we we begin to buy into viewing the stuff of this life as significantly more important than it is status, bank accounts, uh, even something as important as health is, these things are not actually eternally consequential. Um, We all know that within about 100 years, no one who's in this room right now is going to be alive, at least in this physical mortal body that's been touched by sin's curse. We'll be resurrected in heaven, or we'll be alive in in glory with our king in some sense. But we will not be in this mortal body. And yet we fight tooth and nail to stay healthy, to live longer. We jeopardize raising our children righteously, maybe for a promotion, losing hours with our family for a little higher pay. We leverage our children into the best academic places, and maybe do so at jeopardy of their souls. These types of decisions families make frequently. Decisions about how the family works, whether the mom stays home or works. Decisions about how we give to the church financially. The person who has considered the love of Christ looks at how Christ has died, and we join him in death by dying to this life. Means that now, how we view this life is that we have crucified its passions and its missions and its goals. Do you remember in Matthew 6 24, where Jesus says, You can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money, you will serve one and hate the other, but you cannot serve both? <laughs> you have a service you're going to render to some God, you must kill every other master but Jesus. And so this call to consider the love of Christ is actually then a call to, to be actively, maybe I could say this, like the things we crucify are very hard to kill. They keep climbing off the metaphorical crosses we put them on. So you've got to keep killing these things, right? You've got to keep nailing them back to the cross because they mm-hmm. keep slipping off. And I think sometimes we've moved path. Like We're like, oh, you know what, we, I, I, have, I have really wrestled through a righteous ethic when it comes to whatever. And and we fail to realize that it has climbed off the cross, it is barking orders at us, and we are saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, and we are slaves to a master that we need to re-crucify. We need to be people who are dying to the things of this world. But he doesn't just say that. He says it positively. So, Although we have died, we live, but we no longer live for this. We live for what? We live for him. I think that's a really helpful clarification because sometimes the Christian life, we actually live for ourselves. I, mean, I, I think it's true, but the best life you can possibly live is a life circumcised by scripture, circumscribed by scripture that did not come out right. <laughs> I don't even know what that would mean. Yeah. I've read, I've read enough incoherent literature this, this month that weird phrases just are natural for me now. So, circumscribe that is, Scripture leads us to a path of how to live. But we can do that with a heartless, cold, and indifferent heart to Christ. That is, Like, it might be best for you to be a good disciplinarian and proactive with your home and call your children to honesty and and swift obedience. That might make your home a place of peace for you as a mom, and it might make your home a really wretched place for Christ because you're doing that for you. It might be that the Bible gives us really good strategies for saving money and carefully managing our life and living with integrity, and that makes you a fantastic business partner. And you never have to, like, look over your shoulder for the IRS And those best business practices might be fantastic for you, but if they're not done for Christ, something essential is missing in your worship. And it's not worship at all. It's just pragmatism. It's a pragmatism that's rooted in Christian ethic, and and therefore I would say it probably works. So it's going to work because I think God is honored to, to move this world according to his ethos, but that doesn't mean he's honored by a heart that doesn't honor him. So when you look at the text and Paul's meditating on the love of Christ, it leads him to two conclusions. The the crucifixion of a way of life, thinking about life from a very worldly, transient perspective, living for the temporary things of this world, needs to get killed. And in its place then, we center our motives on Christ. We live for him. And I love that it's personal because it's not about living as, as the rules that he's laid down have. It's that we live, we would live by those rules, of course, but we specifically do it for him. We do it for him. Maybe just as you, as you consider how we should apply this or how she can like, take this text and kind of move it into our lives, I, I can say with confidence that the, the best dads, are not the ones who loves his wife and children more than he loves anything, but the one who loves his wife for Christ's sake. And that actually, that actually sanctifies the why then. So when his wife gives him the puppy dog eyes and says, please, please, can we do X? And he evaluates it in light of Christ. His answer isn't driven by this will make my wife happy and get her off my case or it'll make her happy, and therefore this will make our marriage sweet. It's like, is this really going to promote Christ in her life and in our home, and is this something that pleases Christ? And then the answer is devoid of maybe the puppy-dog manipulation going on. And he can truly lean into it and say, I'm happy to please you because it will please Christ. I think often we do not consider that, or again, Maybe I'm projecting here. I think sometimes in my life, I can presume it pleases Christ. Having read my Bible and grown up in a Christian home and living my life counseling others, sometimes I think I can presume. And if it's anything like I drive, sometimes I think I'm driving the speed limit, and I look down and it's like, oops, I'm not. And that speedometer isn't always needed, but there's many times where it's a corrective one way or the other. It's like, I am not paying attention. I need to go the speed here that I should be going. Likewise, Scripture guides us to know how to please our Savior. So the meditation on Christ's love leads the apostle to recognize that the death of Christ isn't merely a theological and historical event that leads him to saving faith, but it leads him to feel so compelled and constrained that now his life becomes one of reflecting that Savior's death. Like, he's died, now I'm dying. I am crucifying the things of this world, and I am living for him. And he looks just like his Savior when he does that, doesn't he? And then Paul says, I think by example, that this is how we all should be. this This isn't Paul just saying to the Corinthians, hey, time out. You guys aren't seeing the world right. Let me show you how I see the world. Okay, good. Now that you know how I see it, we're all good. His whole point to the Corinthians is what? You're viewing people with eyes of pride and arrogance. You're looking at the way the world assesses value and worth, and you're judging me. And you're saying that somehow I am not a great apostle. Because I don't match up to the world's standards of goodness and perfection and rhetoric. And he's already dealt with this in 1 Corinthians. Paul deliberately sets aside the world's standards of excellence and wisdom and strength and nobility so that when he preaches Christ crucified, their faith might rest in God, not in man. And then they judge him as being somehow a second-class apostle because he doesn't check the marks of worldly excellence. And so then he says, well, hey, I want you to join me in considering the love of Christ and how it puts new lenses on the way we engage the world. I no longer live for myself. I view the world through the lens of Christ's love. And that changes my values. It changes my approach to life. It changes the master to whom I answer. It reshapes everything about ministry. And he's calling on the Corinthians to join him in reassessing life through the lens of the love of Christ. So I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little bit of a, a barb out there in terms of every, every four years, I just get hot about how the politics Of our country uses the words of Christ so badly. And about three years ago with COVID, we were just getting beat over the head with, like, love your neighbor. I don't know if you remember that. That was a joyous time for everybody, I'm sure. We're gonna hear it again, or maybe something, you know, uh, an appeal to some type of social care for others who are poor. Um, because, of course, Christ would give to poor people and care for poor people. And there's, there's all these appeals to kind of some type of, you know, ethical virtue that we find in Christ. What's always interesting to me is how often there's zero connection with the Christ of Scripture and the claim they're making about the Christ of Scripture. You know, so they'll cite some little line, and they'll say, well, Jesus did this and this, so therefore we should, and it's like, man, you'd know nothing about Jesus to say that thought. I think one of the ways we guard ourselves against manipulation is by, is by having a clear view of who our Savior is. So that in those moments where it's an appeal to Christ, that's sincerely a false appeal. So I mean by that, like, they're sincerely making it, and they're dead wrong. That, that it's really challenging to know how to respond if we have not spent time considering our Savior and what true love looks like. I think I can safely say true love would turn over tables. would call people whited sepulchers and children of your father, the devil. It would also spend exhausted hours ministering to the weak and the poor. It would also spend time ministering to these social outcasts that would bring shame on someone like the Savior to participate in fellowship with. The Savior also gave himself For the good of his sheep and was deeply sacrificial. But he did not leverage other people's resources in guilt to be given away. In fact, I think he very clearly indicts the Pharisees for that type of thing. So as we consider the love of Christ, my my point is is that there are ways in which the love of Christ moves us just to social good. And we're going to get beat over the head with it for the next year. But here, Paul actually focuses on the love of Christ, and he says, therefore, you should die to yourself. But it doesn't lead to just social good. It actually leads to what? What does focusing on the love of Christ and dying to self lead to here? It's actually at the end of the chapter. To me, it's, one of, it's a really cool clarification on what is actually happening in gospel preaching. Look at verse, look at verse 20. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ's sake. So now having died with Christ, union with Christ, that is now being lived out. We are dying to this world, to ourselves, and we are doing so in such a way that we are now alive for Christ. We're living for Christ. Here's the the outcome of that. We are ambassadors. So that God is making his appeal through us, calling people to be reconciled to him through our preaching. And so Paul actually says, the, the, the application to him has led to a ministry of burdens and hardships and suffering as Christ is using him as a vessel to carry a message that reconciles sinners and makes them righteous through the ministry of Christ. He is, he is God's bullhorn through which God is declaring to the world, come to Christ and be saved. And be righteous. My son has died as a sinner so that sinners might be made alive as righteous. God is making his appeal through us. That's a really cool thought. But it happens when people are willing to carry the shame of Christ, suffer the cost of a little bit of embarrassment, or maybe some social awkwardness, and speak the truth of Christ to those who need it. And so one of his applications for him is gospel, sharing, preaching, communication, pleading, and praying. Consider the love of Christ so that you would no longer live for yourself, but you would live for him.